Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today, we're speaking with Andrew Weisblum, ACE, about the Wes Anderson film, The French Dispatch. I last spoke with Andrew when he edited Alice Through the Looking Glass. Andrew's filmography is incredibly diverse. The Darjeeling Limited, The Wrestler, the Ace Eddie-nominated Fantastic Mr. Fox, the BAFTA and Ace Eddie and Oscar-nominated Black Swan, the Ace Eddie-nominated pilot for Smash, the Ace Eddie-nominated Moonrise Kingdom, and he was the supervising editor on the Ace Eddie-nominated animated film Isle of Dogs. He also edited the upcoming Lin-Manuel Miranda film Tick, Tick, Boom, with another frequent Art of the Cut guest, Myron Kirstein, ACE. You can bet that we'll be talking with both of them about that film in a few weeks. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. What a great film. Holy cow. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been a long wait for it to finally see the light of day, but couldn't be helped, obviously. There were other things going on in the world. Yeah, you've got other films on the tail of this one coming up. So it looks yeah, like- I had Isatemi Faye uh, in September, and now I yep. have Tick, Tick, Boom. It's just a weird pileup <laughs> yeah. of movies, but I think it's happened for a lot of people that um, over the past year and a half, there have been a lot of projects that I've worked on. I've been lucky to work steadily for the past two years, and um, now they're all finally getting released. So it's not like you're just working on these films for three weeks at a time and... <laughs> Or all simultaneously, right? Oh, all simultaneously. Right. That's a possible. I, I interviewed, I think it was Eddie Hamilton that was cutting Kingsman and Mission Impossible at the same time. I'm like, how? Uh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I can't it's imagine. A, it's a bit too much. Yeah. So you mentioned the uh, schedule. Tell us when this film actually shot and the period of time that you worked on it. We began filming at the end of 2018 into 2019. And the editing process went through all of 2019, a little bit into the very beginning of 2020, just finishing up the DI, visual effects, that kind of thing. And the original plan was for it to be released in uh, May at the Cannes Film Festival 2020, but obviously that didn't happen and cut to a year plus later, and now it's getting released. Oh, that's great. I'm sure you've been anxious to have people have a chance to see it. Yeah, I mean, with Wes's films... We don't do a lot of um, <clears throat> audience screenings. So we have friends and family and people that we share the film with and we know our intentions, but you don't really know how it's going to be received until it finally hits the street, as it were. When we did Moonrise Kingdom, I think maybe a dozen people in total had seen the film by the time we premiered it at Cannes. So we had no idea what would happen. You've probably worked on films that have done extensive screenings. Is it just Wes's feeling like this is my film and I know very well what I'm trying to do and I don't really care what the... (laughs) Well, I think he certainly cares what an audience perception is, but I think that the screening process for a lot of filmmakers is a process where it's a studio process, right? It's a way to engage with the film and test their product if you will, unfortunately, you have to put it that way, and see what makes it marketable, what doesn't make it marketable, what meets their expectations, what doesn't. And I think from Wes's point of view, 
none of that is interesting to him or why he makes a film. I can't speak completely for him, but he's much more independently minded as a filmmaker. And do you test a book? Do you test other art forms? The only thing that you do that with is this commodity of filmmaking. And that's because there's so much money at stake. But I think he just doesn't look at it that way. It's not a precious thing. I think it's just there's only so much you can learn. I think it was a little different on Mr. Fox as an example, because that was a film that was very clearly, I don't want to say intended for children, but there was an expectation for a different kind of audience making an animated roll doll film to make sure that there was certain clarity for kids and families and that they took to it. So there was a testing process in that or really a screening process in that. We didn't really do changes based on it, but we learned some things about storytelling and clarity and exposition and stuff that you wouldn't get without that experience. But now that you've seen the film, I don't know what we would gain from a 500 person screening necessarily. They're either going to like this or they aren't, but it's very clearly aligned with intentions artistically. And maybe that's it. I have heard of other directors and certainly editors that it is a studio process, the screening process, but there's also valuable things that you can learn about story. And oh my gosh, the audience is totally not picking up on this relationship or they're not getting this backstory and we need to support that a little stronger. Stuff like that happens. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely true. And I think there are films where it's applicable. I don't know how it would work with a movie like this or with Wes's films. I don't know what it would actually mean because the storytelling is so unique. We constantly are conscious of clarifying things and focusing details and loading it with details, as you can tell. But I don't know how much the process would benefit from that. But there's certainly other filmmakers and other films where the opposite is true, but I don't think that's true in Wes's films. One of the first things that I noticed uh, as I started watching the film was its unique aspect ratio. Does that do anything to your editing? And it did change, didn't it? Were there sections that were one aspect and then another? It's mostly one, three, three, but it does pop to scope a few times and we do split screens. And then we started to play around graphically with split screens where we had a larger image and a smaller side subtext image and moving the images around. And then we start to play a lot graphically with text either on the image or alongside the image, kind of like a magazine, but not too literally in that sense. But we did play around with the notion, or at least it was talked about, that when you look at a magazine with pictures and text, it's not necessarily laid out in one format. Depending on where you are in the magazine, it changes a little bit. So we riffed on that a little bit. But yes, there's that and the whole black and white color thing. It was a constant fluid thing. I mean, as I recall, when we originally started shooting, more of the film was going to be in color. But we started primarily with the Rosenthaler story. And Wes in particular was loving all the black and white that more of the other stories took on the black and white and the color was used as a punctuation or emphasis instead of entire sequences or entire stories. Before we start chatting about that, and I want to talk about those transitions from black and white to color and back the other way, but to fill people in, and hopefully they will have seen the film by the time they listen to this interview, but if they don't, the premise is that it's about this magazine, kind of like the New Yorker magazine, and the film is based on how many exact stories? Four, five, three? Well, there are three main stories, but there's a framing device, which is basically the editorializing of the magazine and a travelogue piece, basically just an introduction to the city that our film takes place in. Yeah. So when you hear us talking about these stories and that kind of thing, that's the reason why is each author of each news story or essay 
has their own section of the film. So they do go back and forth between color and black and white. When was that determined? Was it in the script? Was it just something that you were always cutting in color and Wes would say, hey, let's make this black and white? No, I mean, there was very little of that. We shot on black and white stock when it's black and white and we shot in color when it was color. And it's all shot on 35. There are a handful of examples of that not being the case, but we had some visual effects things that have made more sense for compositing to do in color. But generally speaking, black and white was black and white. But in terms of intention, as I say, that's something that kind of evolved during the shooting process, because I think it was more that one of the story was going to be primarily in color and one would be primarily in black and white, one would be a mix. But I think black and white felt so rich to us and so graphic in a way that popped the details and appealed, I think, to us to a degree that we do these animatics, we do a lot of storyboards, and they had very specific detailing to them in terms of where you want to look and what you want to see. And the black and white footage emulated those intentions in a very specific way. That was my take on it at the time, why it was so appealing to us. But that really evolved during the shoot and then didn't really change much after that. We didn't do it as a post thing. I mean, there was a lot of experimenting with color and color contrast between shots and dynamics. And when we had a color sequence like the Sazerac sequence, which is effectively the tour of the city and the introduction to the magazine and the writers at the beginning of the film, the narrated section that Angelica narrates, we played a lot with how to get the most dynamic color contrast between shots and settings that maybe wasn't photographed that way. We looked for contrast wherever we could. What about the structure? Obviously, the structure inside the film kind of had to stay the way it was, or did some of that change? The overall structure of the film stayed the same. And even internally, it stayed the same. Their different stories are very unique structurally. I would say the Rosenthaler story is the most linear. And then the Manifesto Zeffirelli story and then the uh, Robot Commissaire story get progressively more nonlinear. I would say that... We did very little experimenting with that because to try and unravel that, if I were to take the last story and try and piece it together linearly, I'm not even sure that I could. I mean, the connections from beat to beat are very clear, I think, in terms of what train of thought is leading to the next bit of information and the next bit of information if you're following it. But it's also very lyrical in a way. But to try and take that and map it out logistically and get too focused on plot, I think would miss the point. We didn't really experiment too much. There are little things that we lifted out here and there, things where we transitionally knew we didn't need something we had, so that would get lopped out. But there wasn't a lot of experimenting. It was so um, tightly constructed in terms of how it was written and how the voiceover was meant to play counterpoint to images in a lot of ways and different things like that, that there was very little experimentation with that. It was really just honing it and getting the timing as precise as we could. Was there some thought that while the overall length of the film was the right length or something that a specific story needed to be paced a little differently or that the length of that story needed to change? No, we didn't really encounter that. It's interesting because we worked on the stories so independently from each other, like they were their own films. And those are short enough that you don't really start to think about the overall pace. You're just thinking about keeping it moving and keeping the ideas layered, which is what we went for, that it was constantly coming at you and flowing. 
it was very hard for us in a way to look at it as a whole piece. I mean, we did a few times, but we really just focused on the stories one at a time until we had them the way we want them. And then maybe switched and worked on a different story and worked on a different story because they all had their unique approaches. It was the same with the shoot where we basically would shoot one section, one story of the movie for X number of weeks. And then suddenly the next week, we were shooting what felt like a completely different movie because there was almost no overlap with the sets and almost no overlap with the actors. It was just like an entirely different situation, which is a bit of a challenge for prep, but you carried through in our editorial process. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about music. Some of the pieces played with very sparse music and some of them had more score to them. How did you temp that stuff? And the stuff that didn't have score was beautifully sound designed. The way the sound design works with us is that we, as I mentioned before, we do animatics and the sound starts to enter the picture even that early in the process with animatics. And a lot of times sound effects will carry over key ones, but we work with Wayne Lemmer, our sound designer, through the whole editing process, which is there's no temp love. He gives us sound effects early on and that becomes our library for the sounds. So once we put something in, it tends to stay unless we specifically want to change it. So there's not a lot of last minute experimentation with sound in the mix. The mix becomes about making the dialogue as clear as possible and incorporating the score, which is usually newly recorded. Again, the different stories have different approaches. The middle story has little to no score, original score. It uses some pieces from Delarue and some songs. Aline, which is a song that repeats itself over and over again. And there are a couple other pieces of music that work in a motif sense. And then the other stories is score from Alexandre Desplat. Our process with him is that he's introduced to the film early on we'll share with him our earlier cuts he'll usually come by and watch with us and we'll have a little conversation about what wes's ideas are references if anything often we don't use much temp sometimes we do but we usually don't bother and then wes will communicate with alexander and he'll have some demos for us and once they arrive on certain thematic ideas or things that might be useful then he will deliver those demos with the music editor in a whole bunch of different modular ways as stems, essentially, of different instrumentations of the same themes and ideas and rhythm tracks and orchestral tracks, melody lines, and so forth. And then we build the score pretty much editorially as kind of a roadmap so that we know, okay, at this scene, we want to change the instrumentation here. At this cut, we want to change the instrumentation here. And then once we have what we think is the functional roadmap, we will then sit down with Alexander again, usually Wes will, and share that with him. And he will then make it into what is a coherent organic score, because usually that construction is somewhat repetitive and has loops and stuff in it and things that are not particularly elegant, but show our intentions of what energy we want where. I mean, every time we've done this, he brings some other inspired layer or instrument line or suddenly a flute is a featured part of the score. Who knows what it is? It's some device that finds its way into the score that ties all the ideas together and then we record and that's the process in which we build a score on wes's films that's been developed over time since mr fox you mentioned the fact that you use storyboards but i did not get the animatic do you animatic the entire film pretty much I'm not usually the one doing that. Usually Wes's former assistant, Eddie Bursch, is the one who does it with the storyboards. But the main purpose of that is to plan the shoot. It's not really to define the cut. 
Wes will do all the voices and we'll have all the storyboards. And this is something that came out of the animation process because it's essential there because that's literally how you design and paste the whole film. But you started to understand that as a valuable tool in the production process too, because then ultimately if you're building a set or you're building an environment, you can basically just tailor it to your shots and not just an environment that you can pick up whatever coverage you want. And then you can get much more detailed and specific and economical and efficient about how you're putting things together and how you're shooting things. And it becomes a useful tool for everybody. I will say on this film, we were challenged by the fact that the first story had an essentially complete animatic. The third story, the Robuck Wright story, had, I would say, two-thirds complete animatic. And the Zeffirelli story really only had the one sequence where they're barricaded. And otherwise, that one was basically... I don't want to say on the fly, but it was a lot less mapped out in detail. But from a cutting point of view, we take the animatic and I'll usually build a first assembly based on that and whatever Wes's selects are. And then we start to experiment outside of whatever the animatic was originally, whenever there's something that doesn't quite work as intended. But for a sequence like the Zeffirelli story, we're just cutting it together from scratch. Does that influence you in any way that things are so meticulously constructed? Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it. I mean, even inside a shot, you'll look at a shot and think it's just holding as a shot. But if you see two people on the screen, there's a split screen. If mm-hmm. you see three people, there are two split screens <laughs> and so on and so on. And, and I'm not exaggerating. If you look at a shot that has 12 extras in it, each one is from a different section, from a different take with a different respeed or more for whatever else because it's all just timing right and it's all just getting it as precise as we can and we can manipulate it extensively that usually never just rides and i'd say that's very much the editing process for us and a lot of times there isn't coverage so we'll have a scene that's basically built of these elaborate not oners necessarily but fairly elaborate shots with moves and pans and things where we're well aware of where we can hide our cuts and they're planned it's assumed, even if it isn't shot that way, that we're probably going to throw a cut here and we're going to switch takes here. And the chef is better in this take, but Matthew Amatruik is better in this take. And whatever the combination of ingredients we have, we're constantly playing around with ways we can push it and manipulate it to get the timing exactly the way we want it. Yeah, that's one of those things that I felt watching the film was so much of the pace of it was things that were interframe. It was stuff that was happening inside of a shot that was happening at an exact moment and then something would happen at an exact moment, the camera. It's absolutely the case. And it was the bulk of our editorial process. That's exactly what we did. Very interesting. Sometimes the shots are well-planned for that. Sometimes they aren't. Sometimes it's an afterthought. But once you start doing it in one spot, It's like painting a house. You start doing it everywhere. You can't not nibble out the two frames and that pause there, you know, but it's all detail. The life of the film is all from those details. So to not do it is kind of remiss. Totally understand. A lot of editors do that split screen retiming so that two characters are speaking either more on top of each other or there's more space. But it sounds like you're doing that to an extreme. Yeah, we do it on these films more than most, I would think, in my experience. I mean, I do it plenty. I don't see why not. It's just a tool that we have, and it's something that we can fix. But we also do what we call post-production design, which is we add a lot of 
different decorations or ideas or changes to sets or environments or tableau shots or things that are sometimes informational. There's a sign that we'll add, or there's a graphic that we'll add that is built in the set that you wouldn't necessarily know, but it's a clarifier or a we had a painting somewhere. The frames are constantly worked on. And in a strange way, it is an editorial process because it's about conveying information or emotions or ideas or context for things. It's something we're constantly playing with. I just remembered one of those scenes. There were numerous of them throughout the film, but the one that I can just remember is a low angle of a French street and the sewer-like pumps water out at an exact time. And then various people come onto the street and you see them come out from their windows. And and we rise suddenly on a Monday. So that shot is made up of a, maybe 15 splits. Wow, because it's a one -er. That's a one -er. You got three different <laughs> takes of the dog to get him to run from this corner to that corner and go there and end up in the butcher shop by the end of the shot. And then there's a miniature in the back to expand the city. There was one pickup element that went into that shot too. If I were to lay out for you all those ingredients, it's crazy, but it does make the shot work just so. Yeah. You know. Oh, it felt perfect. Yeah. And there's no way really, unless you did 50 takes that you were going to get that exactly right in one take and why. You don't have to. You can build it from the pieces and you get these amazing characters just doing their thing. And the way Wes shot that, I remember I was there, is that he's just focusing on each one of these effectively non-actors at a time, telling them what to do. And each time he focuses, it gets what he wants from each one. And then I know pretty much how I'm going to combine it all, except to figure out how to get the dog to do what he's supposed to do. But other than that, you know, it's all pretty clear. And not even about photoreality. It's just about a style and an energy and all that stuff. Like there's some impossible things that happen in those shots, but that's the fun, I think. So how long did you have to wait for the sewer to pump the water out? Did you just sit there all day? Oh, no, no, that's, that's just a prop. <laughs> I know. But that's an example of something that that street looks nothing like what you see on the screen. It's an entire construction, but kept efficient because it's done exactly to the frame based on what we storyboarded and what we planned for. So there's just that much street that they built as a platform at the right height in front of the camera and the facade on top of the butcher shop. And the other things are all exactly to what the angle is going to be. There's no coverage plan. It's just going to be a shot. And it's funny, when I read the script originally and I spoke to Wes, I said, every sentence here is a new set. How are we going to do this? And then I was like, yes, of course. Okay. So every sentence is just a shot. It's not a whole set. It's not a whole thing. It's very specifically tailored. And that's the hyper-focused approach that the films have. There's another scene that's the very beginning of the film where a waiter gets a little platter drinks. of food and drinks together and he carries it up through a building. Yeah. And yeah. it was interesting. I was watching that with an editor's eye going, well, that seemed like that was in real time. And then, oh, I think that was sped up. He's gone for a little bit, but he couldn't have made the transition from this window to that window, you know? That's all just one. We did one setup and had the waiter walk from setup to setup. And the cat was from one section and the guy sweeping the thing. We just had him sweep long enough to cover the whole shot for the section where he crosses him. And yeah, of course, it's all impossible what he's doing there physically and couldn't do it all. But we just cut out all the pauses and it's made up of a split for each window, basically. And then the drinks is the same thing where we had two different people off camera doing the hands, making sure they never overlapped. 
but by a frame. And then that tray was done over green and then the camera booms up and the waiter carries the drinks in. But that's all just made up of little pieces. I love it. Just a lot of fun to put together, obviously, but it's all pretty silly. So you or one of your assistants, and I'm assuming you, has to be an expert at animat in the Avid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The audience could not see the eye roll in that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the truth is, actually, I end up doing a lot of that stuff in After Effects rather than the Avid because it's just too klutzy with all the layers that you have to deal with. I'll figure out the general timing and pace of things in the Avid, and then I'll boot it out into After Effects and do it there. As I said, we shot on film. But Wes wanted to do this film in 4K. And we decided for our dailies process, a lot of people, what they had done when they shot on film is they'll do these throwaway scans of 2K and then rescan for the final DI. We decided to do 4K proper scans on a Scanity as part of the dailies process. And so everything in the Avid was a down convert of those 4K DPX files. So anything that I did in After Effects could easily be up to the original DPX because the files I was working with were a proxy from those. In some cases, I would just call up the DPX and do a shot in After Effects with the DPX and then it was done. We didn't have to turn it over to a vendor or anybody else, but it allowed us not to monkey around with registration issues or things like that. What we were seeing was exactly what we were getting. The other thing that we could do is that we could take style frames from the DPX that we had transferred and set looks and colors with them that saved us time in the DI later because we had a very specific reference based on the scan that ended up being our final master. We didn't touch the film after the shoot. There's a little animated section, and you have done plenty of animation, as you pointed out. Was that a typical animation edit process of editing storyboards in an animatic? Well, it was done as an animatic, which then this guy, Gwen, who did the 2D animation, Isle of Dogs, Gwen Germain, took that sequence on, who's French. Um, and it had kind of a, a Tintin-esque quality to it, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it was a normal animation process, but there was very little I needed to do with it editorially because we had figured out in the animatic exactly what it was meant to do. You said you didn't cut the animatic of the live action stuff. Did you cut the animatic of the animation? I recut it a little bit, but not extensively. It was pretty much exactly what Wes wanted anyway. More of it was figuring out the aesthetic translation and how we wanted to do certain camera moves and things that were represented by the storyboards and experimenting with that a little bit. The 2.5D kind of animations that were there that didn't feel out of character with the aesthetic. I think that was a challenging part of the process. It took a while to find the bright looks for the characters, that it was clear who was who and so on. But it was fun to play with. Also just the color scheme for it, that it wasn't fully saturated. It looked inked like a comic strip, but what the palette was for that was an interesting experiment because you were suddenly seeing things in colors that you hadn't seen up to that point. Is there a trick to choosing performance? Some performance stuff is very naturalistic and other of it's almost like a theatrical performance. There's a very specific rhythms to the dialogue, things that might not be completely natural. Yeah, no, well, it's very rhythmic and has a very specific musicality to it. It's yeah. usually what's in Wes's head, unless there's some surprise. 
that comes out of a performance that's this unpredictable thing that just is interesting and feels alive or truthful or exciting in some way. But we do spend a lot of time on dialogue in the performances. And even though you're looking at one picture, you know, any given line can be made up of 10 we do really get into it on that level where we have a stacking process where we basically line up each phrase, every take of each phrase and build out stacks of them. And Wes will say, I like these three words from take five, but this word should be from take seven because that's the funniest one. Then take 15 for the rest of the sentence. And then we'll try that and there'll be some weird bump or some difference in projection and then we have to unravel that and do a couple passes until we get it all and it all then has to fit with the picture that we've chosen which sometimes is easier said than done it depends on what it is we're going for but it's almost never just the sync dialogue that you see and we're always playing with that again it's something we have the flexibility to do so we do it you've worked with a bunch of other directors is there a specific way that you collaborate that is different with Wes than you have with other directors or would you say it's just different with every director anyway well it's certainly different with every director but it's definitely unique with Wes and that especially with the sequences that have animatics we put those together first and we tinker with those for a while and it's only really after that's done that we get together and watch the scenes together and start playing around with them a little bit that's the point where if I see something that's worthy of an alternate or I have other ideas that I want to contribute to it that might improve something, or if I just have a suggestion, it's exercising the ideas in his head first, and then it becomes much more of a collaboration as we go forward. But that's not the case with most other directors that I work with. It's a little bit different. They'll want to see an assembly first, or they'll want it to cut it together, or it's different every time. I have my own theoreticals, my own approaches to those things, but when I'm working with somebody new to try and find a way to communicate with them. You have to feel it out with each different filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Because it's so planned and there's the animatic stuff, what's the process from getting from that first assembly on? Is it much more of that fine tweaking that you're talking about, intra-frame type stuff and the little audio things, but the general framework is pretty locked in at that point? Pretty much. And certainly on this film, that was the case. I would say there have been exceptions to that where we knew we had certain patterns that we had to figure out or narrative challenges that we had to figure out and it changed as a result. Certainly on Mr. Fox, I would say the movie barely resembles the script. We went through so many narrative changes and ideas and had a full narrator character that we then removed who wasn't there in the script to begin with, but really was like a way to help us figure out the plot. We didn't realize it at the time, but it was like our guide. But on this film, there wasn't any of that. It was so beautifully constructed already that there was nothing to throw out about it or to experiment with that I could see. Is there a specific challenge? Can you remember a scene that you're either particularly proud of or you can go, oh my gosh, that was a nightmare trying to solve that issue? No, they're all very different. It's just that there's so many different styles. The precision of the stuff that I was talking about before with the waiter and then the stuff that I was cutting with Timothy and Francis with their characters and Timothy and Lena, the young girl, where it was just kind of jazz and playing with the energy of that, which was much more of a fluid process. They weren't difficult. There weren't difficulties in that sense in the film. It was just honing to find the best versions that we could. The challenge was in getting the details to work and getting the visual effects done and getting all those things 
and making sure that the details are carried through all the way to the end correctly is a lot to keep track of. And a lot of design and sound and all those other things that are more than just the cuts that is really dense in a film like this that you just have to make sure is constantly evolving. Anyway, that's just the job. I've talked to a couple of editors about the value of being at the mix and almost everybody does it, and maybe even being at the DI. But if you had to justify that to a director that thought it was a waste of time for you to be there, what would you say if it was me? Hey, I want you to edit my next film, but you're not going to be at the mix. I know the tracks better than anybody. I cut them. And I know what I did to get that line to fit in there. And I know what I stole here. And I know what the change is there and why I use this track instead of that track and all those other things. They're not temporary. They're built along with the visuals particularly on these films especially since we're working with the sound designer from the beginning and working with the composer from the beginning i'm the one most intimately familiar i mean obviously wes would never say that on the film like this there's just too much to carry through but i would hope to not work on a film where a director didn't want me in the mix that i would feel like they don't understand what i do i'm pretty concerned with sound i think it's half the battle i also with the rough cuts and stuff like there are never any jagged cuts sonically i'm always making sure there aren't any tone bumps or any stuff, things like that, which sort of comes from my assistant days when I used to clean up tracks like that. To me, in order for an edit to feel smooth for me, I want to not hear that stuff. So I work pretty hard to make sure that all those things are working and even in a temporary form in concert with the picture. Even if we know we're going to expand on it or it's going to be a 7-1 or 9-1 mix later, I still want it to be representative of our intentions dynamically. So that's something that gets developed along with the picture. They're not independent. And there's things like the character of a train whistle. Like, oh, we're, we didn't like your sound effect. We're going to put in this sound effect. But you're like, no, there's a reason why your sound effect has a different feeling than mine. Yeah, and it's not even about being precious about it. We chose it for a reason and it influenced other things in a way that I can't always even articulate, but it's also part of why we use stuff from the sound designer and not from a library, is that when you change stuff at the 11th hour, you're not considering the ramifications of it. It's not arbitrary that you've chosen to live with a sound and put it in there and it stayed with that for eight months. We haven't just ignored it. If it was not working, we would have changed it. And I think that's important to respect. But at the same time, I feel that there's really no reason that the sound designers can't be brought in as soon as possible. I mean, I always do. I always share. And that's true with other directors, other filmmakers as well. I try and argue to share the film with the sound department as soon as I can and with the composer as soon as I can, because it doesn't have to be the final cut. It doesn't have to be definitive, but at least they understand the trajectory. They understand what they can bring to it. And the more familiar they are with the project, the better their contributions will be. And the less misunderstanding there will be about where we've taken the film. And I will say that's not always true for a dialogue mixer, because I want to know from them what they can and cannot understand, what they can't hear. Sometimes that's a question that somebody with fresh ears can tell us. Totally get it. It sounded like you were at the DI as well. Yes. The DI was kind of an ongoing process because, as I said, we knew who our colorist was going to be, Gareth, and we shared still frames, DPX frames from certain shots with him where we would establish some looks that Wes could discuss with him and play around with before we hit the DI. I mean, for the color material, I think was useful for that process. It was also useful for visual effects. And it's something that I've understood with Wes why that's an important part of the process because 
to change or disrupt the color later on. He's hypersensitive to those details, as you can tell from the film. To change those arbitrarily late or to walk into a DI and have the film look nothing like we've looked at it for nine months or something is unnecessary at this point. There's no reason not to have it look the way expected to look the whole time. Did you do some kind of tweaking of the dailies color inside the Avid, or did you ask, hey, we really need this to be re- No, we did. I would do some tweaking inside, and then we would translate those numbers over to Gareth. And sometimes they would give us new dailies with those corrections. But if it was secondary corrections or things like that, we didn't do that. It was mostly just like global things. But there was plenty of color work that's done in the Avid. That was why we had this whole idea with the 4K, is that I felt like, I don't want another transfer off the film element that has other chemical, you know, other components to it. Let's work from the same route the whole time so that we can always get back to something that Wes liked or that we liked along the way because we're always working with the same source. That seemed important after previous experiences. It seemed like it made a lot of sense for us to work that way. Wow. Andrew, I thoroughly enjoyed the film and your work on it was fantastic. And I couldn't even see most of the work. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's the idea, right? You're not supposed to see the work. It's hidden. Don't tell anybody that we did all those cuts. Yeah. It's like when I talked to Lee Smith about 1917, I'm like, there are only eight edits in the whole film. Like how hard could it be? He's like, if you only knew, right? That's right. Exactly. If you only knew. (laughs) You see that one of the water coming out of the sewer drain and it's uh, 15 different shots and 20 different pickups and crazy. Yeah. We're going to fix it in post, right? (laughs) And I'm sure that that's not the way you or Wes thought about it. We're going to fix it in post, right? Always planned. No, never. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody gets a chance to see this, especially on the big screen. Awesome film. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I talked to you on Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah, coming up soon. Yep. See you then. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are all available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're also supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. It's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for film professionals of all types. And be on the lookout for our very special first video podcast of Art of the Cut with Joe Walker, ACE, the editor of Dune. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks to my guest, Andrew Weisblum, ACE. Thanks to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And remember that if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. 